Evangelicals haven't betrayed their values. Donald Trump was the culmination of their half-century-long pursuit of a militant Christian masculinity. He was the reincarnation of John Wayne, sitting tall in the saddle, a man who wasn't afraid to resort to violence to bring order. He was a hero for God and country Christians in the line of Barry Goldwater, Ronald Reagan, and Oliver North. He was the latest and greatest high priest of the evangelical cult of masculinity, a cult that aims to force us all to embrace the void. anyone was ever going to make it back from the void, I suppose it was going to be you. Oh, well, you know, one man's void is another man's piece of cake. What about the reality we left behind? What about the reality where Hitler cured cancer, Morty? The answer is don't think about it. People assume that time is a strict progression of cause to effect, but actually, from a non-linear, non-subjective viewpoint, it's more like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 238 of Embrace the Void, where it's all finally coming together. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we are comparing notes about right-wing conspiracism and how movement secularism contributed to the problem. So, let's collapse some culture. Life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... something. My guest this week is Martin Rook, a research fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School who is currently studying the evolution of the far-right culture-collapse narrative. Martin, would you like to say hi to the voids? Hello, voids. How are we doing? Thank you very much for, for hosting me. I appreciate it. As someone who works so hard in void cartography, I'm, I'm excited to have a chat here. A little background for folks. Martin, you reached out to me after listening to episode 236 with Callie Wright, yeah. where we talked about the history of movement secularism in the sort of post-2000s world and, and new atheism and schisms and stuff like that. And you thought it would be fun to compare notes, which I was excited about. So this might have be a slightly kind of different episode than usual in the sense that, you know, I may, you know, jump in a little bit more with my own perspectives than I often would. But first, though, I, I do you want to say a little bit about your background and sort of your current research? Yeah, so I, I'm based in the UK, got my bachelor's degree in biomedical science over here in the UK. And just as my academic career progressed, I, I sort of ended up more and more in the social science realm. I uh, got my PhD in risk sociology. But one of the things I did do sort of around 2014 was I realised the one thing that I didn't know anything about was American conservatism, which was quite big in, in the newspapers, even over here at the time. So I started looking into, into it. And around that time, Gamergate happened. So I paid very close attention to that because it was big and new and, and quite impactful. I just sort of followed that trend onwards, thinking that, all of this knowledge I'm accumulating will, will come in handy somewhere. And it, it, it has. Uh, the, the sort of discourses around uh, cultural collapse, uh, collapse of Western society, and in particular uh, white genocide, has been very popular in the, the, the far right and the further right spaces over the past couple of years. Um, and now we're leading up into the US midterms. Uh, there does seem to be a lot of reorientation taking place on uh, the sort of uh, right, far right, conservative, neo-Nazi side of things. And that's that's definitely worth a look into because uh, one mm. of the one of the things I'm concerned about is that a lot of this language is filtering back into the more sort of center right media deconstruction media. Uh, so things like the No Agenda podcast, and I want to see how well that language maps. Um, but my my biggest concern is that we will have uh, young people sort of, of, of of college age stumbling across these narratives and really going down a rabbit hole and just leaving themselves vulnerable uh, in terms of, you know, future career pros uh, prospects and, and things like that. Mm. Yeah. And I think that that tracks a lot with sort of 
my concerns as well in terms of the mainstreaming of fairly extreme, you know, anti-Semitic and other sorts of conspiracy theories via these kind of broad moral panics around wokeness and culture war kind of stuff. I also am excited to have this conversation because, you know, I do a, a lot of like across the pond conspiracism spread issues. I, I work with the UK skeptics folks who are wonderful and I... I'm always really interested to hear about like how things are appearing from one side versus the other with specific issues. So it's interesting to me that you mentioned that you found Gamergate really impactful over there at the time. I think that it, you know it's, it is important. It's very significant, and I think it is under sort of appreciated its role in all of this. But I'm actually curious to hear what the experience of it was like over there like why do you feel like it was because not all the things that happen over here make it over there and vice versa so like why did that one pick up over there and what was the takes that were sort of going around on that front well i think one of the one of the the, the sort of big impacts of, of gamergate sort of arose from the end of uh new atheism and and, and we sort of speak about mm. that schism and there is a little bit of, of context, particularly from, from Britain, that, that does need to be explained. Back in the 1990s, and this is what my, my PhD research was on, there was a real big anti-science focus of the mainstream media. Uh, issues like uh, mad cow disease, BSE was, was all on the front pages. Um, and then there was a lot of um, anti-genetically modified crop uh, protests. I say protests, it was direct action that, that uh, did damage quite a lot of the, uh, the, the crops at the time. The House of Lords put forward a committee, it was their third one on science and technology, and the whole emphasis of that was to say that both academia and the media were really failing science, um, because at the time, scientists didn't want to, to speak to the, the, the journalists there was just a massive mm -hmm. uh, gulf in communication and so one of the uh, outcomes of the house of lords third report was to say we need to get you guys in contact and the science media center was set up as a direct response to that uh, with that aim of smoothing over the, the communications then we had the mmr debate primarily led by uh, the the Express over here, the newspaper. Uh, they were mm -hmm. campaigning very hard on the link or, or, or proposed link between the MMR triple vaccine and uh, autism, but also- this was, because, this was because of Wakefield, right? The Andrew Wakefield we, yeah, material. Yeah, um, so- mm -hmm. I, Sorry, I just, want to, I just want to pause for one second. I realize some of this is going to, like, we're going to reference some things and I'm not sure we can get to explaining all of them. We should at least briefly mention what Gamergate is, which was- a sort of large cultural dust up around individuals involved in gaming and gaming and reporting and, and reviewing of gaming. And it essentially boils down to a debate about whether wokeness was infecting and destroying gamer culture. There was a lot of anti-feminist rhetoric that went into it and a lot of, you know, a lot of abuse thrown around and it likely impacted the sort of playbook for a lot of the communities that we're going to be talking about here so sorry i didn't mean to interrupt i just wanted to no, no. We're, we're new to all of this that's yeah. fine you're, you're the professional here when it comes to the podcasting side of things so yeah the, the the mmr debate happened and that really proved to the journalists that yes they they did need to to up their game uh, a lot of the more right-leaning papers were were uh, reporting a lot on issues like you know who is the government to take away our single vaccine regimen that, that we know and trust and give us something new parental rights and all of those things but the left-wing mm -hmm. papers really focused on the risks of the single vaccine regimen uh the risks to children of measles or mumps or rubella and just the sheer volume of of information scientific information out there just absolutely battered the the, the right-wing papers and they went okay yeah we, we need to change oh interesting so you feel like you feel like the information so so often there's a concern that like the left gets too obsessed with like the information deficit problem and like believes mistakenly that if you just provide the enough of the facts people will listen and change their mind um but you're saying in this particular situation that approach like actually worked to some extent it worked to change how journalists reported on uh, scientific mm -hmm. issues. Uh, but yeah, the, the deficit model of, of uh, science communication, the idea that uh, people 
just simply don't know enough about the science. And if uh, we, whoever we are, provide the information, then people will come around to a logical uh, response and, and shape their ha behaviour based on, on this sort of logical understanding of the information. Uh, that does, and there's a lot of research in risk, risk sociology, that does very little to address the political tensions um, mm. that, that underpin people's concerns around uh, science and technology. Um, and we mm -hmm. saw that quite a bit with, with, with COVID, uh, particularly mm, past mandates yeah. and, and stuff like that, but we, we can get onto that. Okay, so yeah, so it's Indigator, Indigamergate then, I guess, right? Yeah, um, well, before before that, we also okay. had the, the, the war on terror. Um, the war oh, on terror uh -huh. sort of took place um, and obviously that brought in a lot of uh, anti-Islamic narratives um, but also as well in 2005, George Bush was reported as saying that God told him to end the, the tyranny in Iraq. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's that sense of a more pro-scientific movement uh, in the mainstream media uh, in those 2000s, also coupled with a sort of sense of decisions should not be made on uh, religiosity. Um, and I think that's really what, what pushed new atheism to the mm -hmm. fore. Um, mm -hmm. But by the by Gamergate, there is this schism uh, that, that emerged with sort of one side of new atheism gravitating towards uh, atheism plus uh, and sort of really trying to forward uh, liberal uh, social issues as a part of, of atheism. Um, and then you started to also see that the skeptics kind of wander away or, or what would become the skeptic movement sort of wander away from that. Uh, looking at things like uh, Elevator Gate, um, which was, uh, I'm not too, not too sure on the full story, uh, but there was a lady who um, went to one of the uh, atheist conferences, uh, was, was propositioned for sex in an elevator, um, and, and uh, you know, claimed that this was sexual harassment, um, which, you know, for, for a lot of people that does seem like sexual harassment, but for a lot of the people who would become skeptics, uh, that was a sense of, well, how do you proposition a woman for sex? What, what is the appropriate way to ask someone for sex? Or perhaps more problematically, they were saying this was not a problem. Um, and we, we see that sense of doubt uh, repeat itself in the Me Too movement and things like that. But also as well at the same time, uh, or, or roughly around the same time, we saw Occupy Wall Street, which really carried uh, this millennial sense of uh, a, a critique of capitalism um, and why the Occupy um, movement itself. But towards the end of that, it started adopting more uh, cosmopolitan approaches to, to addressing systemic uh, injustices. And the mm -hmm. uh, progressive stack was, was, was uh, commonly cited as a massive problem. The progressive stack being a, a situation in which uh, intersectionality is, is used as a hierarchy by which people can start voicing their opinions on things. The oppression so, Olympics kind of problem, right? Yeah, and and so for these for these skeptics who had battered, a, uh, sorry, for these for these skeptics who had battered uh, Christianity, uh, they, they they had sort of proven the uh, fundamentalist evangelicals wrong on issues of uh, evolution um, and and wrong. Uh, sorry, not. Uh, prove them wrong on issues of creationism um, and, and things like that. They're now suddenly finding that there's this new movement out there that is recasting masculinity and whiteness as mm. less than desirable or at worst, more of a risk uh, to, to uh, women and people of colour. Um, but at the same time, the narratives that were coming out of that didn't really track with their lived experiences. And this is when we start getting into Gamergate and you see people like mm. Sargon of Akkad, uh, who, was a, who was a British um, Gamergater and, and quite a leading voice of that. And a lot of what he was saying was, well, I come from not a great area. I don't have white privilege. Um, you know, I right. am trying my best to, to survive here. Um, and you're you over there on, on the atheism plus side as saying that uh, I am inherently oppressing uh, just simply through being. Um, and I, I find that ridiculous. Um, and that is what 
uh, sort of some of the, the underpinnings of, of Gamergate because when Gamergate emerged as a sex scandal, um, people were very interested in discussing it. Naturally, uh, we, we have our tabloids over here in the UK and mm -hmm. we have sex scandals pretty much weekly in those things. It's a thing that we're interested yeah, in. Yeah, I, I didn't mention there was a sex scandal element to the Gamergate stuff, but of course there's personal drama and things involved in it on top of the quote-unquote ethics and gamer journalism. Yeah, um, and they well, that, that's, that's how it began. It began with a, with a sex scandal uh, mm -hmm. involving involving a, a woman who reportedly was, was having uh, sex with... Uh, several different men in the indie gaming sphere uh, in order to receive uh, favorable coverage of, of her game. And right. so important to know that that was reported by her angry ex-boyfriend. Yeah, definitely. Right. Um, and so people wanted to, to discuss this and they went on Reddit and, and other different forums to, to discuss this and then found that the uh, comment sections and, and places like Reddit were starting to limit discussion. They didn't want to have that discussion uh, and mm. they decried that discussion as misogynistic, uh, to which point everyone said, well, why are you censoring this? And they really pushed hard. Um, I believe it was Monday, Matt got a video of DMCA'd on YouTube, which really kicked it off. And now the discussion was taking place on YouTube, which was the space for atheism and uh, uh, mm. sort of anti-evangelical discourse um, several years earlier, it's now being focused on this sense of there's actually something a bit rotten with gaming. Then what happened was a lot of the uh, gaming journalistic outlets all at roughly the same time released similar articles that sort of said uh, that the, the white male gaming identity doesn't have to be the audience for video games. Developers don't really mm -hmm. have to pay attention to these people. Um, and that really, really, really upset the, the, the gamer gators. Um, and that really pushed the uh, the the. Uh, discourse on and gave them something to fight for but at the same time Gamergate also attracted other actors from other spheres uh, places like the men's right movement and MGTOW uh, men going their own way and, and those really sort of uh, misogynistic and toxic elements were attracted to Gamergate and several of them blended their identities in so you start to see a lot more discussion of um, men and masculinity at risk from this elitist feminist uh, cabal um, who who want to erase uh, sort of traditional mm -hmm. masculinity as as a as a cultural form. And that's where we get into your cultural collapse narrative problem, right? This this wokeness is is undermining human flourishing by you know undermining masculinity or something or white you know like whatever thing they think is valuable and the next step is going to be you know widespread cultural collapse essentially uh, yes um it took a while for that narrative to really be established um because mm. the, the the game gators who would become the skeptics sort of realized that there was uh, a lot of money to be made uh, from anti-feminist um, content. And they used very similar tactics of uh, sort of debunking and discrediting uh, feminist theory, uh, data from feminist researchers, as what they did with the arguments that were put forward by the, the, the Christian evangelicals uh, and, and by uh, Muslims uh, on, on YouTube sort of, three four years earlier um but yeah they they sort of came across with the with the idea um particularly around uh gynocentrism um and and uh hypergamy this idea that actually uh society itself isn't designed for traditionally masculine men um mm -hmm. I, the the gynocentrism thing argues that uh that, that society has been built around protecting women um, that doesn't necessarily dispute um, 
the dis discourses around the patriarchy, but it does suggest that if the patriarchy does exist, because um, a lot of this is, is, is their perception, but if the patriarchy does exist, then it has uh, ad 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 advantaged women far more than it has advantaged men. Um, mm -hmm. And very similarly, the hypergamy idea is this sense that uh, women get into relationships um, in order to uh, move up through social status. So there is this real sense of evolutionary psychology that underpins a lot of the discourse. And that mm. sort of links it back into its, its atheistic pro-science uh, roots, not necessarily saying that right. these theories have scientific evidence behind them, but they're using a lot of complex language and really trying to put across uh, complex ideas, even if they originated from, from lay people and, and people outside of academia. What we've mm -hmm. seen since is uh, a, a sort of simplification of the language. We're no longer talking about cultural Marxism or, uh, or uh, gynocentrism in these spheres. It's being really much reduced down to people from LGBT uh, uh, orientations. They are degenerates or, or they are demons, they're demonic, they're possessed. And a lot of that religious language is coming into the, into the, uh, the discourse. Are you seeing the spread of the groomer ter terminology? I assume in these communities as well. That 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 seems to have picked up rather quickly. Oh yeah, most most definitely. Um, since uh, QAnon and and Jeffrey Epstein, um, this real focus that that uh, children are uh, at risk from from sexual predation uh, has has really taken hold. Um, and then of course there was the uh, unfortunate image of. Uh, the uh, drag time story hour with the uh, with the drag artist sort of wearing horns and looking like a demon. Um, mm -hmm. Alex Jones could not have asked for for a better bit of propaganda if he designed it himself. Mm, yeah, I, yeah, and it's tough. I, you know, I, I go back and forth a lot on how to make sense of activism like that, and when what are the ways to do it that like are um, positive and can't sort of be easily manipulated manipulated in that kind of way. Um, I wanna, so let's drill down on something here because um, you bring up the Evo Psych thing and I think this is a really important angle and I wanna use it to highlight some pieces of elevator gate that I think might be helpful here. I first wanna highlight, I think it's worth noting that Gamergate and Elevator Gate, besides happening very close together, are very similar events in the sense that you have specific women, right? You have um, Rebecca Watson in the case of Elevator Gate and uh, Zoe Quinn. And also, I think you could argue Sarkeesian gets pulled into that whole situation, um, you know, who are essentially um being critical of the way that an environment that everyone pretty much i think agreed was heavily dominated by men at these times mm. is not accessible to women in various ways right is sort of deliberately or you know passively excluding women in various ways um and they get you know really heavily attacked for it like um you know uh in particular, right, Watson gets attacked by Dawkins, who I think refuses to be on panels with her and stuff, like tries to essentially get her blackballed for, you know, arguing in favor of um, laws of, you know, like codes of conduct. And I think, you know, it can sound like a straw man to say all they were arguing against was codes of conduct. But this is where I think the Evo Psych stuff is really important, because what you really do see is arguments being made along the lines of, if you institute codes of conduct where you know men feel uncomfortable to hit on women or something, the human race will die out essentially. That was like a phrase that got thrown around as the main concern here, right? Was that like somehow if we had these rules, people just wouldn't reproduce anymore, right? Like the whole system of dating, that whole ladder game that you were talking about would essentially um, break down. I also wanna highlight, um, you mentioned earlier, and I just want to clarify, um, you said that she was propositioned for sex we, uh, because people might complain. Let's be very precise. What happened was she was at a panel where she talked about specifically these issues, the issues of feeling sexualized in 
a, you know, non-believer communities. And then afterwards, folks went out for drinks. And at like four in the morning or something, she goes back to her room. A guy goes back into the elevator with her and on the way up invites her back to his room for coffee, right? You could argue that wasn't a proposition for sex. I think it is very clearly like trying to pick somebody up. But again, that's the exact phrasing of what happened there. What really does matter, though, is that she then says, don't do this. This is the thing I was saying, don't do. And everybody freaks out, right? So, yeah. No, thank, thank you. Thank you for, for uh, clarifying it for me. Because uh, as I said, I, I have only really received mm-hmm. secondhand um, commentary sure. on what happened during that time. So it was just me trying to put it together as, as, as best I could. Um, but yeah, the, the, the argument that feminism it, itself, or rather third wave feminism was, was the particular uh, aspect that was being attacked at the time. Um, feminism, one of the, the main goals on it was to disrupt uh don't want to say normal, but but normal relationships between men and women um, to to disrupt the family unit um, and as as a sense of as a sense of sort of Western white virtue signalling, uh, just mm-hmm. just limit the sense of procreation. Now this is something that has been picked up upon again uh, very recently, although it doesn't necessarily use the um, evolutionary psychology angle to it, um, especially regarding the um, New Zealand mosque shooter and his accelerationist manifesto. Um, they, that's where we start seeing the the fourteen words uh, being used, um, and and it's this sense that. Uh, which, is a, which is a common Nazi thing for folks who are not familiar. It's about the preservation of the white race. Pre- preservation of the white race through uh, birth rates or, or rather through having children and this idea that feminism... Resisting white genocide, right? Yeah. Uh, f- feminism, uh, neoliberalism, cosmopolitanism, it wants to destroy uh, whiteness as as a... Uh, as an identity and by and, and through disrupting uh, sexual relationships between men and women um, by advocating for childless living, um, it will uh, cause whiteness to be in a decline. At the same time, those elite neoliberal powers are pushing forward with um, immigration uh, into Western nations uh, from from uh, Arab and, and African states um, where mm-hmm. those people have much higher birth rates and therefore would be outbreeding uh, uh, whites again to, to sort of remove uh, whites as a uh, political power block because and this is when you start getting into into the, the really far right stuff there is the argument that there's something inherent about whiteness and what I mean by that is uh, mm-hmm. Anglo-European heritage um, that is resistant to uh, global capitalism um, and by extension of that, and this is where the anti-Semitism comes into it, uh, mm-hmm. sort of Jewish power, Jewish supremacy, and, and that sort of thing. Um, and one aspect of uh, this this sort of white heritage is uh, the the sort of Christian foundation on which it's predicated. Um, Catholic or, or Protestant doesn't really matter. Uh, it is just this this Christian sense behind it. Um, of, of sort of delaying gratification, um, mm-hmm. of uh, seeking spirituality as well, um, that, that resists um, global uh, capitalism. So, so based on that point, this is actually something I was curious about. Um, I more and more these days want people to use the phrase white Christian nationalism, not just Christian nationalism. I'm curious if you feel like from what you've seen, it is important to make that distinction do you yourself tend to tend towards just christian nationalism as the concern or white christian nationalism in particular how do you think about that honestly i haven't thought about it but now you now you've put that out there yeah that that does make um a lot more sense um well there is a bit of a dispute going on at the moment um that that being said uh you have the uh, neo-Nazis who 
do focus on on the the whiteness in in white Christian nationalism, um, and a lot of them begrudgingly have come round uh, to to uh, adopting. The, the Christianity part of it, um, because a lot of those actors would say that they were atheists 10 years ago. Um, mm. And so they're, they're looking I've at... I've been tracking James Lindsay specifically on this exact arc for several years, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's this sense that there is something inherent to Western culture that is Christian, and therefore we, we should uh, replicate it as much as possible. But at the same time, uh, you've got other people like E. Michael Jones, who argues that whiteness uh, isn't necessarily a good identity, um, that we that we should focus on the Christian part of of. Uh, Western culture, and we should forward the the, the Christian nationalist uh, element to it. Um, but that being said, uh, Nick Fuentes uh, has, has very recently uh, reorientated his America First movement and has specifically made it a a Christian founded. Um, political movement. He, he's fully embracing God and Jesus uh, mm -hmm. as a part of his political platform. And although uh, Fuentes himself uh, is, is Catholic, that hasn't been a part of, or, or at least an established part of uh, his political platform over the past few years. So mm -hmm. the the whiteness angle to it, uh, although it is implicitly white, the, the explicit whiteness to it um, is still being debated, uh, if, you, if you want to use that term, um, mm. in, in those in those spheres. That makes sense. Yeah. So let me um, now, I guess I would say when I use white Christian nationalism, I include people in there who would would bulk if you use that term, even if they might bulk slightly less if you said Christian nationalism or if you said, you know, uh, a culture based on Christian morals or something like that. But it seems to me that the real driving energy here is the kind of white Christian fear of change that has been specifically stoked by the GOP since the 60s via the Southern strategy and things like that. And I think, you know, and especially to distinguish between sort of how Amer white American Christians act on these issues versus like black Protestants in America, like it's very clear that there is a racial element, I think, to this that is on top of all of these things. Um, but I want to talk about something else, actually, because we've spent most of our time here on like big picture movementy kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm I'm increasingly inclined to think, you know, in, in, despite my dislike of the, the great person accounts of history, I do think it's important to understand how a couple of very specific actors and like contingent events that happened with them really tipped the balance where it could have gone a different way, potentially. Mm. Um, and I have in mind here in particular the canceling of Sam Harris um, and to a lesser extent Dawkins, but mostly Sam Harris. Um, and my reasoning is this. Um, for folks who are not familiar, Sam Harris got in trouble during that Islamic, you know, period, the, the post 9-11 period for, you know, saying things that I think are Islamophobic and being in favor of racial profiling in a really like not good kind of way, like really, really bad kind of straightforwardly bad kind of way, not even kind of obfuscating it or, or plausible deniability or anything like that. Okay, so he gets you know, dogpiled. And I, arguably, it's probably one of the like early big cases that leads to like people thinking a lot about cancel culture as a concept, I would argue, um, because he really makes it the center of his identity in a lot of ways, it feels like. And it leads to him then sort of uncritically onboarding folks like Charles Murray, um, who he, you know, presents as being this kind of forbidden knowledge that's being kept from you by the woke. And, um, you know, Murray's project, despite Harris not realizing this, is very much a, you know, white, uh, essentially white nationalist kind of um, white, white supremacist approach, whereby he makes sort of the safe-ish kind of scientific arguments on which to base claims like, you know, demographic change would be bad for our society because the people who would replace the white people are less intelligent or something like that. Like, he builds a lot of that foundation out. And I think the reason he gets such an uncritical platforming from Harris is because Harris identifies as this canceled person now 
and so finds common ground with these other canceled people and promotes them in a way that really normalizes this anti-woke perspective in large swaths of the new atheist community, where I think if, you know, if it had gone the other way and he had not, you know, freaked out in response to being um, dogpiled, if he had changed his views or something like that, he probably could have, I think, prevented some, some amount, some significant amount of people from sliding in that direction. Um, but instead you get his promotion and, and, um, and also folks like, mainly I would say James Lindsay and Peter Bergosian and Helen Pluckrose, who also explicitly come out of the new atheist and quote unquote, you know, street epistemology movements, um, which was a kind of subset, I would argue, of these communities and really explicitly believe that they are using the tools of new atheism to attack a new religion, right? To attack wokeness um, as this kind of religion. So I think those specific individuals in our community making the move that they did in response to sort of intense online debate around these issues had a fairly significant impact on the degree to which the schisming occurred and the number of people I think that have spiraled with them off towards the more right-wing and conspiratorial mindset. So what is your, you know, take on all of that? Is that track at all with things that you've seen yeah it, it does track um there's several elements to that but i think the most resonant one is a lot of the uh the the, the figureheads um both the sort of more mainstream figureheads like like dawkins and harris as well as the alternative figureheads um like like sargon of Academy and people like that uh, really came up against their own naivety or, or at least their own perceived naivety in that they felt or may have felt that science was simply revealing the truth um uh, revealing empirical mm -hmm. data and that sense of a deficit understanding um or the deficit model of communication um but they then may have found that by revealing the data that they were getting uh, a pushback, uh, they were getting critiqued in ways that they never had before, um, because a lot of the criticism was coming from uh, more complex sociological theory and, and philosophical theory and, and mm -hmm. things like that. And so they found themselves in a situation where there was a building audience who wanted to hear more of the uh, what we would call now anti-woke narratives. Um, mm -hmm. they, they, they had gravitated. And there's also this other segment of their audience who hates the things that they're talking about and just just simply they're going to start producing more of that more of that content and as they're going down that they're also illustrating or even through their, their life's journey they're illustrating and demonstrating to their new audience that actually the production of, of scientific information is inherently flawed um it's not as as straightforward as we like to think it is um mm -hmm. and even then you know we, we've seen things like the replica uh, replicability crisis and p hacking uh and and all of those issues um but they started asking the question of well who is in control of not just how does data and information get out there but how does it spread um and that really does build into what we see with a lot of the later conspiracy theories um mm, things like mm. uh flat earth i love flat earthers i i think flat earthers are great because they they're, mm. they're a great case study in i have a friend you should talk to but yes go ahead. <laughs> but they're a fantastic case study in a stance that is scientifically bollocks it, it, it makes absolutely no sense scientifically but when you start unpicking their uh, political concerns about information control and management mm -hmm. you go ah i see how you got there they start from the premise of we cannot trust the government the government right. is you, you cannot trust it inherently distrust the government Therefore, if science and NASA is funded by the government, we can't trust the information put out by science and, and, and NASA. Right, um, right. And so they build this mythology 
around that sense of distrust. And a lot of uh, what happened with the counselling of, of Sam Harris um, and, and other uh, scientists around around that earlier period was mm. a realization that actually there is this sense of of distrust to be had towards um, sort of mainstream scientific production, um, and mm. so they they began investigating that. And there's a kind of there's a bit of a a split brain situation I feel like going on there. So and I think it's, I think they try to resolve it via the hard soft distinction within science. So what I what I experienced as happening was these folks had used science to debunk religion fairly effectively in various ways and now they're concerned that that tool is being undermined by wokeness and what they I think they essentially did was say hard science is immune to the problems you're describing and I think it actually is fair to say that different kinds of science are to different degrees susceptible to certain kinds of problems um but basically what they were like is you know the hard sciences aren't actually having these problems the soft sciences on the other hand are bunk right they basically jettisoned everything up to and almost including psychology if it's not evolutionary psychology um by by saying that like that's all bad science that's junk science and that's the stuff that's getting us all this social justice um culture war kind of stuff um so yeah, I do think there was a concern there and they kind of they pushed back really hard um, in that kind of direction. I'm trying to think there were other concerns. Um, so, so let me let me ask you, um, I, I want to spend a little bit of time before we run out of time here talking about like the potential um, implications of this sort of broadly speaking, you know, how worried are you about the situation like? You know, I, I actually, oh, actually, sorry, I remember what the other thing was. I apologize. Um, what you were saying in there was related to something that I actually, I wrote an article about for the UK Skeptic Mag, you know, called Beware the They, um, which essentially came about because I was talking to my friend Michael Marshall from that group who does a lot of work on flat earthers. Like he goes to their conventions and has done really good work highlighting how under the cute surface of flat eartherism, you find a bunch of anti-Semitism and other really creepy, more dangerously kind of conspiratorial stuff. And and what I argued was exactly what you were saying there, that like, to, when you understand the conspiracism spiral, the way that people go from one view to holding all these views, I think for a lot of them, it is exactly this, where once you accept the premise, there are people hiding the truth from you on X it's impossible for that premise to not justify everything else. And so you get an endless kind of yes and game amongst conspiracy theorists where, well, yeah, if your conspiracy is true because they're lying to us, then then my conspiracy is true because they're lying to us, et cetera, et cetera. And like, yeah. they all become equally plausible under that mechanism. Yeah, I mean, just a case in point on, on that one, um, the, the, the current uh, conspiracy theory regarding COVID is, is the mm -hmm. assertion that, covid is the covid symptoms are caused by uh snake venom in in the water um mm -hmm. and additionally snake venom is is what's in uh the the, the vaccine um and I, I watched i watched the documentary i say documentary but i watched the show of, of the guy going through his theory right. and he, his assertion was along the lines of uh they uh, are trying to create human satan hybrids by using snake venom mm. uh because uh garden of eden and the snake in there and uh corona means crown and king cobra and again it, it's one of those things that is absolutely baffling to hear but even mm -hmm. within the conspiracy theories uh, the, the 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 theorist sphere those who say do you know what no this one's a bit of a step too far they're getting pushback from their audience saying no we we, we believe this one this this one makes a lot of sense uh how mm -hmm. can you how mm -hmm. can you discredit this this man's uh science um and it is a sense of we have to believe the next thing that comes out because it is a more of a revelation of the method and a presentation of secret and hidden information mm -hmm. um that is wholly attractive um at, at, at the moment um because we've got to this point where 
people know that the information is manipulated, not not scientific inf information, um, right. although that is, that is to a degree, but just the flow of information goes through so many different processes of uh, editing and, and being focused for a specific audience that what we get at the end has been shaped by an intention. And so the question right. is, what was the intention behind shaping the information? Um, and that, that's right. one of the things that, again, is picked up by these different groups and the big focus on they are shaping the information and, and the they is whatever boogeyman the group decides is, is ultimately in charge of society. Yeah, and I want to talk about that boogeyman real quick for a second. Um, you know, I think... Um, a lot of what's and you bring you sort of brought it in there with the like human animal hybrid thing you see that a lot in a bunch of places more and more what i see is the unifying theme of anti-transhumanism i wrote a piece about this about recently as well um specifically with regard to like anti-trans or gender critical communities um and i i think this this is, is valuable as an overarching theme because it brings together a lot of maybe all of the disparate communities that we are seeing coalescing in this cluster that we're talking about here because the transhumanism is viewed as the technocrat alternative to the natural and traditional essentially so yeah. that means that the you know the men's rights guys the far lefty anti-vax naturalists you know the QAnoners who are afraid of the trans people transing their kids like all of these people can get together behind a sort of general fear that the left is trying to you know radically alter human beings to make them more susceptible to you know something right these people often these people love capitalism but are really also afraid that like they're being used by that same meritocratic capitalism, which they absolutely are. Um, and so all of that, I think, comes together to create this, you know, what might seem weird to the outside, but from the inside seems like a very plausible fear of like all of this technology that's going towards our bodies and all these kinds of things. And it's hard because some of that is like legitimate, right? There are legitimate concerns about the impacts of social media on people's psychology, for example. Um, but um, that then becomes a kind of entry card for everything. And that's a pr big problem, it seems. Yeah, um, I think the, the, the major entry point was um, Alex Jones's uh, statement that they are, are turning the frogs gay. Turning the frogs uh, gay, yeah, classic. And, and, and of course, people sort of went, no, that's that's ridiculous. And so they, they, they found the paper, and it wasn't a case that Alex Jones was either right or wrong. It was that he was correct to a point, um, mm -hmm. that, that there was chemicals that, that turned the Often frogs hermaphroditic. Right. Yeah. And so the, the, the focus has shifted away from this sense of uh, correct or incorrect to how correct are you or how correct is the proposition? Um, mm. And the, the, the proposition for a lot of the conspiracy theories is that the elites are trying to uh, break human solidarity, destroy uh, our, our cultural connection, our Western cultural connection to one another in order mm -hmm. to repackage us as simply revenue generating units. Um, and this is where you get into a lot of the atomized mm -hmm. individualism sort of side of things. And although you, you, you mentioned... Which is deeply ironic because these are also radically individualist individuals at the same time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You've mentioned the, the, the transhumanist uh, element and that's a, a reasonably newer one um, that, that's sort of become popular with the uh, discourse around uh, trans identities. But mm -hmm. going back over the past few years, it was that sense of um, what, what was the meme? Uh, I will not eat the bugs. I will not live in the pod, um, which right. is another aspect of it. So not only yeah, Lindsay are... and O'Fallon are obsessed with the bug thing, too. A lot of them are obsessed with it. It's such an easy example of like the liberals are going to take away your joys for some nebulous purpose. Well, it's it's to the, the nebulous purpose is to make you or, or, or make the make society a mm -hmm. sort of what's what I'm looking for here basic consumers 
that there is right. no resistance to to uh, late stage capitalism that you will simply consume and you will be happy with that you will not own anything and, and that sense of ownership going back mm-hmm. to uh the, the the magna carta and and uh, english uh classical liberalism that sense right. that they often quote um klaus schwab on that specific one actually yeah I yeah see that one come up a lot that sense that the human, the the individual, has the right to, to actually own property uh, and has the right within that property or on that property to shape it how they want, um, mm-hmm. and to to raise a family and and to uh, produce offspring that will inherit uh, the, the the property um, is that sense that. I want to say I don't want to say the left, but the the left are happy with destroying that and. Right. In ex- by extension, destroying Western culture because it was all built up upon that. Apparently, um, mm-hmm. yeah. So I, I, I agree. With, I agree that that is that is the concern. Let me get in here and just uh, mention because we, you know, it's important to note anti-conspiracism work gets harder in the modern world because a real conspiracies exist and people know they exist, and forces that are bad are out there like capitalism, and they do you know, manipulate people in ways that are harmful. W- one thing that I think is important to help with not sliding into, a, well, how, how do we resist thinking, you know, that these people are right in general is that um, as folks like Knowledge Fight, who follows Alex Jones a lot, point out, you know, these are like psychics in the sense that they will, you know, throw out as many shots as they can. And when something hits, you know, even a little bit, even remotely, right, they'll, they'll, reiterate that point forever and everybody forgets about all the other stuff so you know if you're looking for an actual reliable source of information one that doesn't take wild shots and just remembers the hits right these are still not reliable sources even if there is a general correct principle about you know concerns about the way that information um, spreads i also think it's valuable to highlight that the fear of information spreading is has been successfully reinforced by fear of, you know, quote unquote, mainstream media, which is a term that I see thrown around in lots of different spheres, despite it being a really problematic phrase. But, you know, it does highlight that there is a low trust in the media. And part of that is because the media has not done a good job of, you know, like maintaining, um, you know, a good trusting relationship with society. But also part of it is just, you know, the relentless Fox News attack on every other media source in the world. Um, But okay, we're running short on time. And I wanted to ask a little bit about like, concern and policy. So let me ask you first, broadly speaking, how worried are you about this? Because I, you know, I, I come from a, you know, being skeptical of moral panics background. And at the same time, I'm really genuinely worried that white Christian nationalism is like, driving the GOP, and that's pulling us off a cultural cliff. Um, So how do I understand that? What level of concern I should have about this that isn't panicky? Yeah, you're asking a risk, <laughs> risk sociologist to, to comment on risk. Um, <laughs> in in less than five minutes, go. <laughs> well, that depends on on, <laughs> on on the individual and what they perceive to be the danger. Um, can you as a person abide some degree of, of Christian nationalism in your policy? If not, then it's going to be uh, a very panicky time for you um, because I have a sense that conservatism, um, not neoconservatism that we have seen, but a more uh, traditional sense of conservatism is ascendant mm-hmm. at the moment. Um Looking at the moves that the Daily Wire is making, uh, producing kids content, $100,000 investment, um, looking at the popularity of places like The Blaze and things like that. Um, but beyond that, looking at Bill Maher, now caught in a more right-wing audience, Russell mm-hmm. Brands now caught in a more right-wing audience. I feel that a, sea ch- a tide change is, is taking place. Um, whether it will go fully down the the road of Christian nationalism and we end up as as we were in in the 90s and obviously that that spawns a lot of resistance from the metal scene Marilyn Manson and and, and so on like that I don't know there may mm. be corrective measures on the right it, it may be it may be a case that you do have more center right people realizing 
actually, this is going a bit too far. Let's drag it back a little bit. Um, that is possible. Um, but I think for the moment, there is definitely energy behind or rather impetus behind uh, giving the left a good kicking. Um, and I think that will be the state of affairs for the next couple of years. Mm. In terms of things that could slow this down, one discussion is around content moderation online. So, you know, this could be anything from Facebook cracking down on QAnon groups to banning Alex Jones from Twitter to kicking a bunch of Nazis off of Twitter. Um, and the concern there for some people is, well, then they just go and start their own groups and you know, we can't keep an eye on them or something like in some way it's it's worse if they're if they're quarantined. Um, wh what is your take on these like different kinds of approaches? Do you think a that it's good to like cut off major figures like Alex Jones and B, do you feel like trying to quarantine these communities off of broader social media and prevent them from having a larger audience is sort of productive or counterproductive or a mixed bag? Uh, I think from the evidence we have, uh, I, I say evidence, it's not something that we've, we've fully quantified, but from, from my observations, trying to quarantine uh, has not necessarily worked, especially as we're moving into Web 3.0, which is a sense that we as uh, sort of a, a social internet society, we're moving away from the big platforms, the, the, the Facebook, the Twitter, um, the, the Reddit, and people are beginning to make their own little spheres, whether that's through the Fediverse or whether that's through... Um, there's different platforms now that offer you the ability to create your own little YouTube. Uh, so mm -hmm. Nick, Nick Fuentes has his cozy TV, uh, Vox day has his own one. Um, and so there is still the ability for, uh, the spread of information because now it is more of a case. It's a bit like professional wrestling. You know, you will have your star and your star will be in this territory one day and another territory the other day on a different podcast um, and so or, or, or stream. And so people can still discover this information. But rather than being algorithmically presented as it has been in Web 2.0, there is this sense of authenticity in discovery. And that's where we're seeing a lot of the popularity of uh, Telegram take place because Telegram mm. as a social media site doesn't present algorithmically. You do not engage in a wider discussion. You will go to specific channels because that channel gives you exactly what you're looking for. So you as the internet user are able to curate your own information sphere. Um, that's happening. Whether whether we, we uh, take steps to uh, algorithmically mm -hmm. curate that on the bigger platforms, um, that is happening in, in real time. Um, what I suspect might happen, um, not, not saying this is neither good nor bad, uh, but as... Uh, sort of machine learning when it comes to people's uh, likes and wants and, and behaviours online develops, we may see a sort of splitting of algorithmic presentation of information. So those who lean more to the right will start to see more right wing or centre right, less hard right content in their sphere. And those on the left wing will, will see relatively uh, similar stuff uh, from, from their uh, political perspective. Um, mm. But I think at the moment, there, this is going to sound so strange for me to say, but there is a dearth mm. of mainstream conservative or right-leaning uh, content. Um, mm -hmm. Fox News is the one of the only very few right-wing news channels. And so they have carte blanche to set the right-wing agenda. Um, you've yeah. got other ones like Newsmax, which is a new up-and-comer, but there's nothing really competitive in that sphere. 
Um, mm -hmm. So they've they've been granted de facto ability and de facto power to to set the right wing conversation. And you're seeing yeah. challenges. I, I think you could argue that like groups like Bulwark exist, but have not been successful in you know like creating much energy in the moderate conservative space. It feels like. Yeah, um, there, there, there has been very little penetration. Um, you've got, again, so, place. Yeah, no, sorry. I just wanted to, because we're going to run short on time. If, if you're not as sort of uh, sanguine on the moderation side, are there any policies that you think are sort of have hopeful signs of being effective at slowing any of this down? Policy? Uh, Probably not, because the, the issue with policy is that it creates an anti antagonistic actor. It, mm. it, with policy, it becomes something to fight against. Um, and we, we've seen that with, with Twitter and Elon Musk. Uh, Musk. Musk wants to take over Twitter because, perhaps in his perception, Twitter has become antagonistic uh, towards right-leaning dissent of, of uh, progressive ideals. Um, mm. What I feel does work, and, uh, and you mentioned knowledge fight, they work, they do it fantastically, is that they ridicule, they mercilessly mock Alex Jones. They debunk him quite a bit, but they mock him. Um, this was something that we saw uh, during the atheist wars. It was not just the debunking of uh, fundamentalist assertions, but it was also the mocking of having those beliefs. We also saw this in British journalism over the 2000s, uh, in that sense that when uh, 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 there needed to be that cultural change in journalism to become more pro-science, The Guardian brought aboard um, Dr. Ben Goldacre, uh, who was running his bad science blog, um, mm. And they brought him on to write it as a column. And what he did was he took examples of bad science by British journalists. He put their byline front and centre and he said, these people are doing science terribly. And then in the rest of the blog, he eviscerated them. And mm -hmm. I, I've had uh, interviews with journalists and they've said, yeah, no, what Goldacre did really showed us that we were doing a terrible job at what we were doing. Um, mm. Whether that translates so well into this conspiratorial sphere, I don't know, because we are we are well and truly sort of at the 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 uh, event horizon when it comes to mm. our understanding of information and knowledge transfer in the digital realm. Um, I mean, just 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 to state that this is the first time in human history that the general public have had such power to voice their concerns and their opinions and their perceptions um that we we really don't know what the best foot forward is yeah i think that makes sense i'm i'm similar i'm i'm, I'm sympathetic um i know we're over time i always try to give you a chance to say a little bit about um resources that you think would be helpful for folks who, who want to do a little deeper dive into this before i get to torturing you so is there like one or two you know is there a book or anything in particular that you thought helped you understand this a little better? The work of Mary Douglas, um, she produced a book called Purity and Danger. And what that really gets across is the idea that when it comes to risks, um, not just health risks, but moral risks, uh, there is no such thing as a right and wrong answer. It is mostly... Uh, groups within a society or, or within a, a general geographical area that are in competition with one another for the right to define what is dangerous uh, and therefore what is safe and what the best approach is to go from a risky situation to a safe situation. Um, some great theory there. The the great. other the, the other uh, resource would be uh, the, the uh, Technology and Social Change Project's Media Manipulation Casebook. Um, we've got a lot of information there, especially how to look at misinformation cycles, um, going down to who started it and how it ends up and the changes that take place along the way. Okay, great. I really appreciate that. So now, unfortunately, that means I have to torture you. Uh, this is the enlightening round. Enlightenment comes from within. 
And this will be a proper lightning round since we've gone a little over. So I'm going to keep you to time here. So I'm going to give you a list of things. You're going to tell me, are these things real or not real? Those are your only options. You don't get to hedge. You don't get to define what you mean by real. Just real or not real. Okay. Ready? Yeah. Asking a, a social constructivist, what is real or not real? Okay. Yeah. Let's do this. You got this. I believe in you. All right. So first of all, let me check. Do you think anything is real? Yes. All right. Great. So let's find out what's real. The external world, real or not real? Real. Colors, real or not real? Real. Phenomenal consciousness. Um, <laughs> real dependent on the person. Yeah, no, real or not real? Fine then, real. All right, free will? Real. Selves or persons? Real. Genders? Real. Races? Real. Species? Real. Morality? Oh, that is a tough one. Real. Rights? Real. Knowledge? Real. God or gods? Real. Society? Real. Money? Real. Numbers? Um, real. Fictional characters? Not real. Holes, like a hole in the ground? Real. Chairs? Real. Sandwiches? Real. Science? Real. <laughs> Natural laws? Real. Beauty? Real. Love? Real. Causality? Real. And finally, time. Real. All right. You survived. How do you feel? I feel like I want to go into each of those individually and, and uh, explain my answer. <laughs> I, I fully understand. That's the, that's a normal experience. I'm amused that you went, you slid pretty hard towards the real side on that one. That was funny. Yeah. Again, social, social constructivism is one of those things that perception is reality. You've got so many different... Uh, people, groups, cultures out there with, with, with different understandings of, of mm. what is perceived to be real. Um, yeah, well, I'll difficult. say um, we can talk about it a little bit. We do a little bonus segment afterwards. And we can I, I can hear a little bit more about wh which ones were struggles for you, um, but we should leave it for the main segment. So, um, Martin, I really appreciate it. Do you want to let folks know where they can find your content and yourself online and whatnot? Yep, uh, I'm on Twitter at Dr. D-R-M Rook, R-O-O-K-E. Uh, if you want to have a weekly update on, on my observations of what's taking, uh, taking place in the far right sphere, uh, it's Echoes from the Right on Substack. Wonderful. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and chat about this. Thank you very much for having me. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks again to our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. As always, I'd like to thank our top tier patrons, our Archon level patrons, Lawrence Shielding, This Is Your Brain Speaking, Ha Woe, Dude, Fix the Vote, Ugh, Hemet Meta, But Sounded So Shrill, What Happened to Jessica, Chad T, Jesse Rabinowitz, and Brenda Goodman. And all the thanks to our Archduke level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Little Void Eyes, and Dave Maslich. If you'd like to support the show, please check out my other show, Philosophers in Space. And while you're at it, check out our wonderful editor, Louisa Lyons's Film Live Musicals podcast. Leave them all a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. You can also follow me on Twitter at ETVPod or email me at voidpod at gmail.com. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access episodes and bonus VIP content. Most of all, no matter what the white Christian nationalists tell you, you are the void, and the void is you.